Changers, Do-Gooders, and Hellraisers. We are Hairpin, a collective of communicators, strategists, and creatives working with organizations to help build their audiences and tell their stories. This is our podcast designed for disruption, and today we're going to be talking about the radical why, understanding why it is you do what you do. Why does your organization exist? A very existential question. So my name is Nick Tatro. I'm an art director at Hairpin. My name is Kristen Hughes, co-founder and creative director at Hairpin. And I'm Sean Adamak. I'm a communication strategist and partner at Hairpin. Craig Bida, brand strategist and partner at Hairpin. Brendan Hughes, creative director for editorial and animation. Kristen, I know I kind of gave a broad example of what the radical why is, but do you want to just tell us a little bit more and how we're going to talk about it today through some mm-hmm. examples? Um, so thank you. Uh, so the radical why is... Uh, deeply integrated with the radical what and the radical how. So uh, we, like the rest of the world, are um, in the throes of a health crisis, an economic crisis, a crisis, a crisis of racial justice, a crisis of, uh, our, in our democracy, and that's all wrapped in the climate crisis. And it seems like there's a massive, massive moment of reckoning across all sectors. And we're having a conversation with our clients and hopefully with listeners about how to dig deep to our core and figure out why we exist, what are our core convictions, and how can we use them to pivot in a moment like this to continue to do the work of social change. We've been talking as a team and with our clients at this particular moment, and there's a a bunch of incredible work that's happening across sectors. And then there's a bunch of organizations that are struggling about how to pivot and respond in this moment of great upheaval. Um, So I'm curious if there are some examples that the team has brought that are sort of indicative of organizations that are really digging and finding their radical why. Yeah, Kristen, it's it's terrific to to see this explosion of ideas that are happening and all these pivots and changes that are occurring. You know, as we sat down to talk about this, you know, I think we had a list of what sixteen or seventeen ideas that we think are shareable. We're going to dig into just a couple of them today. You know, the, the the key thing is that for so long, many organizations have mixed up their model with the mission, right? So that they, you get used to doing something. You think of yourself as delivering a certain product or service, and then one day you wake up uh, and COVID happens, and all of a sudden the needs for that product or service have radically changed or even gone away. Uh, so what do you do then? It really forces that question of like, what are we in the business of creating or delivering? And a great example, we're seeing a lot in the mobility space. We're seeing a lot of uh, uh, metro trans operators changing and evolving. A really strong example comes out of Portland, Oregon, where TriMet, the, the, the local mass transit organization that delivers bus service and light rail, you know, has had an incredibly steep and precipitous decline in its ridership. And what are they doing? They're deploying workers from TriMet to go out and support social sector organizations who are delivering food to elders, uh, Meals on Wheels programs. Other partnerships are cropping up across the country where transit providers are realizing that their job is not to move shiny metal boxes on wheels. Their job is to move people and goods and services to connect, even at a higher order, people with the things they need and and deliver and get people to where they want to go. Uh, And so this is a a really great example of a radical why, saying, wait, we don't exist to to deliver uh, transit services. We deliver mobility. We deliver access, and we go to where the needs are if we have to. 
And I think there are a number of listeners in the social sector, number of our clients, number of our partners in this sector that are finding themselves at, at some version of that. Their, their model has been dramatically uh, upended. They're, they're needing to, they're, they're existing in a brand new context. And so how do they get themselves there? Or how did you know, the organizations, the examples that you just talked about, get themselves there? And I think it's three things when it comes to the radical why. It's purpose, beliefs, and vision. And so if organizations can ask themselves, what is our purpose? Why do we exist? What are our motivations behind that existence? Even what problem are we trying to solve? Beliefs is the core convictions that underlie our work. What are the non-negotiables? What are the fundamental truths about the world that underlie our work? And then vision is, you know, it's, I think organizations are used to, it may be more, um, it's more traditional to come up with a vision statement and a mission statement and so on. But vision in this, in this instance, it's what does utopia look like? It's what are we trying to accomplish? Um, and if, if organizations can, can sort of put themselves into, those, into that headspace and ask themselves those fundamental questions and then take a look at them across the board and say, okay, how can we deliver this, this collection of things, our purpose, our beliefs, and our vision differently? And if, 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 people can, if, if, if advocates in the social sector can do that with fidelity, then this process will become a lot easier for them. And is the confusion you described, Craig, do you guys see that as common with some of the folks you work with? Because it seems like what happens is organizations get really comfortable with how they deliver what they deliver. And that comfort level actually makes them think that that's the why, when really the what is not the why. And we'll talk about the what eventually down the road, the radical what, but the radical why sort of becomes this nebulous thing because we get so comfortable delivering what we know how to deliver and what we're comfortable delivering. And then a disruption like COVID hits and suddenly that what you're delivering, how you're delivering it is no longer possible. So you have to now revert back to this why, this existential question, why do we exist? And it is not the tactics. It's actually, it's existential, it's philosophical. So is that a confusion you all see often with some of the folks we work with? Yeah, it certainly is. And, and there are so many factors, right? It's how you get your funding, where your revenue comes from, what, you know, what, where, where people are in what jobs and what chairs and, and, and what the mindset of the organization is. You know, and, and, and to, it, the top spin on top of what you said, Sean, around purpose, vision, and, and beliefs is, is the mindset. You know, are organizations in a place where their mindset is we have to think differently about what it is that we do now or they are in the mindset, I spoke with an organization the other day, they said, we've got enough money in the bank for 18 months, we can ride this out. You know, that's an organization that doesn't have a mindset shift. That's an organization that's trying to protect their existing pipes and plumbing and keep doing the thing they're doing, hoping they're gonna outlast this thing versus saying, what do we do in the next 18 minutes that's gonna be more relevant and, and different and powerful uh, to meet the needs of our changing constituency? So I think the mindset part uh, and the embrace of the pivot is the thing that can be hardest for organizations. And you're gonna see organizations who can't figure this out literally go out of business. I also wonder about the, the muscles needed to like constantly revisit the why. I think like, it's not done. It's, it, it evolves. Like given the situation that we're all experiencing, um, there should be a, a practice of asking ourselves again and again, um, you know, are we 
are we uh, serving the core, our core beliefs, our core values? It's not really the what that is being delivered. It is the why, which gives you the freedom to be able to pivot. Um, and it does seem to me like that is something that should be built into every organization's you know, quarterly, like radical why meeting. Um, we should institute that as a, you know, a healthy practice um, because as we are looking towards the future, we're living now in great massive upheaval. The repercussions we're starting to see but are only going to continue to evolve. We're going to have to ask ourselves like really hard questions and, and be vulnerable and be ready to adapt and, and pivot. And that takes willingness to fail, to be embarrassed, to, um, and to do the work and not get um, cozy. The problem with that, though, is that it sounds so exhaustingly hypervigilant, the stance that an organization needs to suddenly be at at all times. I can imagine organizations looking back to their founding and seeing it as a time where they needed the big founding energy and never saw their families, and they needed to get to dry ground and get out of the stabilization mode and into the maintenance mode of, their, of being able to deliver what they do. And what this is demanding of people is to stay forever in the founding mode and way because they're constantly refounding their organizations and one hurdle that people have to get over mentally is the daunt factor of that and are there some i know craig your example from the mobility sector was a really good one of a really looking inward and you know philosophically understanding why you exist um in general is there a more current example that we can think of in this moment of an organization or a company like really truly adapting for this so one example uh that's really interesting in the higher ed space is a partnership between wentworth um, and digital ready which is a nonprofit, which is partnering to basically provide uh grade 13 um, as we're transitioning from like physical brick and mortar sit down in your seat schools um, to this uh, version of remote engagement. Um, it's giving Boston Public Schools the opportunity um, to uh, continue to learn, build skills in um, Wentworth is uh, engineering, largely an engineering school. So the STEM space um, and it's just a really adaptive response to this particular moment in time. Colleges and, and universities across the spectrum, from public to private, are facing an existential crisis. Students are deciding in their families whether or not they should return in the fall. Uh, higher ed is at a place right now where the disruption could be complete and total for a huge number of colleges and universities. And so it's about understanding why do you exist? It's not about your model. It's not about your educational model. It's saying if, if our commitment is to bring people to a certain level of understanding and preparation for life, uh, it might not be the normal co context in which we operated. It might have not have been we're not a four-year institution or a two-year institution. And so opening up a new time space, taking advantage of a cultural moment where people are saying, I'm not paying full, 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 pay, full bore, uh, full, I'm not paying full tuition uh, to be online or digital, but to open up the space 
and also to be sensitive to the equity issues right now and have this be focused on, funded by the Bar Foundation, philanthropies involved. This is at no cost to the students who will participate. So it creates a safe space of learning and opportunity and advancement for a population that has not traditionally been receiving that, 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 that advancement or that support. Uh, and Wentworth is, is recasting itself. They've just opened themselves up. Are they college students? Are they high school students? It's in between. It's year 13, right? They've expanded the boundary, their strategic boundary of who gets to go to, go to Wentworth. So it is, a, it is a very disruptive idea that many colleges and universities are pursuing right now. How do you engage younger people uh, using the assets you have? Forget our model. What's our mission? Educating young people, preparing and strengthening communities for the future. It's also potentially really interesting example of the radical how in terms of how you're showing up, how you're projecting yourself. Higher ed is supposed to be innovators, leaders, almost incubators for good ideas. That's the, that's, that's the sort of character of that whole sector. And, you know, you know, some, some push leaders pull, you know, this is a good example of Wentworth pulling, leading with a new idea, a somewhat radical idea and really living through their character as a higher ed institution that is meant to be innovative and and imaginative. <laughs> you know, the other thing I'll say is that um, this is a really interesting moment for that example is 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 one of an organization whose whose you know purpose has to do with creating connection. And there are a lot of those in the social sector. A lot of work I was working with just one the other day that uh, connects um, first generation uh, college students of color with employers, for example, creating that connection. Um, another uh, is a uh, um, a nonprofit uh, outfit that connects other nonprofits with volunteers for the purpose of filling their boards. Well, right now, the board recruitment is probably the last thing in a lot of organizations' minds, but that, that nonprofit, it's called Inspiring Service, they were able to pivot and to use their platform to quantify, track, and highlight the extent of the disruption, how it's impacting the nonprofit sector. So organizations in the area now can have a sense of, of, of the problem and where to deploy and how to deploy volunteers. And so, you know, if the conventional why was to fill vacancies on nonprofit boards, the radical why is to send help where it's needed most to, to, you know, uh, arm the social sector with the support network that it needs. You know, there's another key takeaway from this one, which is that, you know, this idea has been around for almost a decade, this idea of year 13. And so the times around us are changing. So for organizations to get at the radical why, you know, the radical why might be sitting under their very nose. The radical why might be something that they've been working on or dreaming about or trying to get attention for the last 10 years or longer. Uh, and now suddenly as attitudes towards equity are shifting as systems are being challenged and are breaking down, it might be an opportunity to seize a moment. So there's, there's, there's more than one way to get to your radical why, I guess is the point. And for, for organizations that can see the moment, seize the moment, and even if it means dusting off something uh, and bringing it forward to a, to a changed context, uh, this might be the moment to, to drive something forward. So we would encourage listeners to, to not just uh, think about, as you said a minute ago, Brenda, the, the, the get, go back to your foundation, go back into that sort of space of 
crazy beginnings and you may have some ideas from that time you may have ideas from yesterday the, the, the moment has changed around us how, how can organizations seize it and, and, and move things forward in a different way there's um, there's that Greek myth about Cassandra who could see the future and tried to tell everyone but no one would listen to her and every organization has its Cassandras and so you have to find yours and listen to what she's been saying for 10 years this is someone like what's happening right now has accelerated the conversation it has brought um the horizon so much closer in some cases around like they were they were trying to push the conversation push uh public perception push and now suddenly um the public is closer to being able to to sort of comprehend the complexities around uh, police brutality around, you know, living while black, around living while trans, you know, like sort of being able to hear and comprehend other stories, other experiences. But I really appreciated some conversations we've been having in the last few weeks about um, people, particularly working in the education space around equity, saying um, that they want to push harder, faster, go deeper, be more transparent um, uh, because of this moment in response to this moment. And the fact that the future, that horizon is moving closer and closer, is that forcing mechanism for you and your organization to, to really understand how important the radical why is because no matter how much the times change and the tactics and what things look like, you know, radio became podcasts, TV became streaming. Um, the dressing changes, the window dressing changes, but what's inside the house, your radical why ultimately will stay the same. So continuing to, uh, to adapt your tactics to the time, but always being able to revert back to that radical why, why you exist and adapting that to the current state of things, whether it's disruption or whether it's just the future rapidly approaching is super important. Yeah, Nick, and I think there's such a, a meta point in this all about the radical why. This is not something you dream up in a vacuum, right? It's, it's about being user-centric. It's about being focused on your stakeholders and what they need. One of our great example, examples abound in, in higher ed. One of our clients, Next Generation Learning Challenges, we got to speak to someone in California from the Lindsay Unified School District. They talk about how they defined what their why is. They went and asked the stakeholders in their district what they needed and what they wanted. And they said, we want 24-7. They said, we want 24-7 internet access for everyone in the community. You know, schools aren't typically internet access providers. Uh, and so they gulped and said, okay, uh, and went and found a way to, to bring that to their community, knocking on the doors of every fifth house in the community, putting repeaters in, and basically homegrown built their own uh, internet system using, exist, you know, building off of existing infrastructure that uh, where Verizon and Sprint and others you know, feared to tread because of the lack of economic returns in this impoverished community. And so, so they didn't define themselves as, oh, we deliver instruction in rooms. Uh, and that's what we do. And if there are internet access gaps, sorry, we can't take care of that. They said, no, this is what our stakeholders are demanding and wanting and needing, and we know it too. And therefore this becomes our job. They, that is radical why in action and, and really is an example to, to anybody listening saying, you know, what are the boundaries that you've allowed to exist before? What are the things that you've just ignored or looked the other way as you've delivered your product and service that has been, you know, incomplete or, or not, achieving the vision or the beliefs that 
Sean, you mentioned earlier the, the purpose that you exist for. So that's a key moment of discomfort for, 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 for clients, for people, for all of us to ask, you know, how, what do I need to expand or grow or evolve or partner, or collaborate or do differently uh, to, to better serve the needs of my stakeholders and not be content with, uh, we just can't do that or that's not what we do or that's not our model. And so if the radical why is the purpose, beliefs, and vision, uh, you know, exploring those elements to sort of get at your radical why, then the radical what is not the literal what you deliver. It's not the, the program that you deliver or the service that you deliver. It's how people benefit from it and what credibility you bring to that space. And so for organizations, you know, exploring their own radical what, um, ask yourself, how are people been who's benefiting how both functionally and emotionally and then why would people believe that we can do that 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 we're the go-to you know for that and i've been thinking a lot lately about people running for office right now and you know i, I often hesitate making comparisons between the social sector and the political sector mainly because they serve at least campaigns serve a very different purpose i i came from that world and our goal was to get you the voter across the finish line by the first Tuesday in November. And after which, you know, we, we cared, we cared less about, about what your, you know, behavior was going to be. It was about short-term behavior change. And in the social sector, we're talking about long-term behavior change, but at a moment of disruption that we're all experiencing now, those running for office have really needed to pivot, really needed to consider how to, are people benefiting from my campaign and what credibility do I bring to this space? I spoke to a friend of mine yesterday who's running for Congress. And, you know, I mean, the, we read a lot about the presidential campaigns and how they are or aren't uh, adapting to, to, you know, to this moment. You know, Biden has gone completely virtual. He's done, a, you know, a bunch of town halls virtually and, you know, lots of videos and so on and so forth. They've even launched a podcast. But there are smaller campaigns. I voted in my local election, my town election today. Um, uh, even congressional campaigns are not, uh, you know, uh, swimming in resources. They have had to pivot with no playbook. A friend of mine who's running for Congress, I talked to yesterday, said, uh, this is Jesse Murmel running in, the, in, in Massachusetts 4th. Um, she said, you know, there's no, there's no manual here. There's no consultant I can go hire that can tell me how to run a successful campaign in the midst of a pandemic. Um, and so the, the lesson for her was to not be afraid to fail. They try, they've tried a lot of things. They had a digital artist create coloring book pages that were campaign and, and district related and invited people on social media to have their kids color them and then send them back to the campaign and they would um, sort of feature them uh, wildly successful. And other things that they did really fell flat on their face. But, you know, for low investments and for, you know, a little bit of work, not a lot of work, they were able to sort of try some things and, and, and get some credit for having tried it. Political campaigns and candidates deliver more than handshake and you know stump speeches they they if you're doing it right for the right reasons they're delivering a lot of the same things that the social sector is they're delivering human connections and inspiration and 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 valuable information for people to make up their their minds and those candidates have really had to shift the way they do that right now and john such an important thread through everything you just said and, and it ties back to what we said a few moments ago like we're using right now the language of entrepreneurship 
you know, a mindset shift about your why and really trying to let go of what it, your model or your operating systems and all the stuff you've done that the legacy that got you here today, the mindset shift required to see things differently is an entrepreneurial mindset. The mindset you just described of resources at hand, taking a step, learning, being willing to fail. If you fail, great. If you didn't, if you, if you succeed, great. You iterate, you learn, you move on again. You take affordable losses and you move forward. That is essentially the language of entrepreneurship. You know, I do a lot of work out at Babson. That's entrepreneurial thought and action. And it's, you can go to Babson for four years and get a degree to learn that, right? So, so here you have po political campaigns now operating in an entrepreneurial mindset. You have organizations being forced to accept this, 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 this approach to, 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 to life, right? Which is as we all invent our way now towards uh, a new future. It, it requires exactly those those attributes that you're talking about. I see a lot of um, uh, our partners uh, in the uh, nonprofit space uh, get stuck in um, this part of the radical what, which is um, they get stuck on the um, functional benefit versus the emotional benefit. And um, I've seen uh, uh, great moments of epiphany where, and it just happened the other day where, um, Craig, you were walking somebody through their functional benefits and then got them to the emotional benefits because that's the way we're going to be able to connect with our stakeholders, with the audience, with the people that we need to take an action or be moved or help us change the narrative. Um, and I think that that's a great um, distinction that would be great to dive a little bit into because um, I do think that organizations and humans get in the way, get in their own way um, when it comes down to just the purely functional and this is what we're gonna, this is what we do without the heart behind it. Yeah. Can we break that down for the listener? Functional benefit versus emotional? Yeah. So think of it this way. Think of, you know, and let's use, let's use just cause it's, it's easier in some way. The lines are easier to see in the product and service world of, of say, you know, the commercial world, right? Where you, you buy toothpaste and you use it to functionally prevent cavities. But what you're really buying is a healthy, smile you're buying a sense of of, of self-worth of, of being able to be perceived in that way you know the the bad the idea of a bad hair day that some people use is is a, is a real thing right so you might buy something to use that helps create some physical need. Automobiles are a great example. They provide some functional benefits of moving you from some place to the other. You know, but why do people spend you know, X and 5,000 X on, on a vehicle, right? There are all these other emotional benefits that are attended. And, and I, I sometimes resist as someone who's lived in the corporate sector and in nonprofit, the you know, nonprofits can learn from corporate sector this way or vice versa. And there's often this sort of mindset of like, oh, the nonprofit sector has so much to learn from. You know, it really is a two way street that the lines are, are, are being broken down. But there is something over the years that really has struck me that in the corporate sector, I think brands are so used to fighting their way out of commodity corners and commodity sinkholes. Uh, with emotion that they get really powerfully good at it, right? My wife worked for Nike for over a decade. They sell a commodity product. What makes the difference for a product that's probably made literally in the same factory in some cases as a competitor uh, is the meaning, is the emotion, is what it aspires to be and how it helps you uh, 
uh, engage your life and, and, how, and how it helps you operate in your life. And so, so it is really interesting when we see nonprofits, uh, social sector warriors who are in the midst of such emotional terrain and providing such powerful uh, impact on people's lives sort of shy away from in some cases talking about that the emotionality of that and 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 it's new for them when we present back to them these are the emotional benefits that you're delivering whether you know it or not uh, it's been really interesting to introduce ideas like social determinants of health and to to have people at least think about if not fully embrace and recognize that they are actually a healthcare provider in some ways by engaging uh, their stakeholders in a certain way and, and, and having them think of themselves and open the door to uh, understanding that they are delivering emotional benefits and then ensuring that they're doing that consistently and not just randomly or on good days but that becomes part of their commitment to their stakeholders is the next is the next hill to climb but but you're right Kristen it's such a an, an underutilized and powerful tool which is it should be used so much more there's a legend of Robert Town when he was writing Chinatown, and this is a spoiler, but the movie came out several decades ago, that when he got to the end of the first draft and he realized what that movie was about, which is control of the future, he typed out control of the future, cut, out a cut it out as a strip, and taped it to his typewriter so that over the course of the second draft, every single keystroke was filtered through control of the future. And then he wrote one of the finest written movies of all time. And I think if people had, could find that emotional nugget of the radical why and tape it to what they look at every day and filter everything through that keyhole, then they're gonna be doing some serious um, social foo. <laughs> It's funny, we often coach clients through when we bring them through a branding process and we create a sort of pyramid for them. We often coach clients to print it out and, and you know, put it on the, the, the cubicle wall. So, so it's literally something you look at every day. Clients often ask us, how, how often should we be revisiting this? And in reality, you ought to be looking at it every day. You ought to be considering it every day and, and, and assessing its relevance every day. I have this sitting right underneath my uh, computer monitor. Mm -hmm. the is no. That's the lens. The, I run yeah. into that Post lens. Post it with the answer is no. Yeah. And Sean, if you say that, it's, it's almost funny to me that people don't do that, right? Like again, from a, from a corporate world, having worked with the Disneys and Hiltons and FedExes and P&Gs of the world, like you will literally walk into conference rooms and that is, is on the wall. That's printed in the, the, you know, the, the, the table, the conference room table, the cutouts of the consumer are everywhere. And so it, it's this maniacal obsession with, this, with your user. It's this maniacal obsession with understanding that those emotional and, psych, and social benefits, you know, like, and, and this is coming again from someone maybe, maybe jaded from this, but having sold batteries and water and air, like maybe some of the hardest things you can sell, you realize that all there is is the emotion, right? Duracell, yeah. sales of Duracell batteries would go up three times that of private label during hurricane season. Why? Why? People are craving a sense of protection. You would ask someone, so you think private label batteries, yeah, well, do you put them in your smoke detectors in your children's bedrooms? Uh, well, uh, not there, right? So there, there is this emotional break between functionality, uh, beyond functionality that, you know, in, not to manipulate people or not to, to, to really take advantage of that, but to just explore at the very least. What is the emotional terrain that we are playing in? What are the full range of emotional benefits that we can offer? And Brendan, as you said, 
how do you live and breathe that every day becomes like such a powerful question for organizations uh, to give themselves the permission to do and something they should be doing now. There's a, there are two types of dentists you meet at a party. One type of dentist, uh, you say, what do you do for a living? And they're like, I give people their confidence back. And the other type of dentist is like, I put my hands in people's mouths and drill an animal, you know, you want, and you gotta be thinking like, I give people their confidence back it, through, you know, fixing, fixing their screwed up teeth. And because of the people with, in the organizations with that type of thinking or the companies, you know, if it's good enough for the sector, you know, maybe this is too reductive, that's just selling products, then this should also be good enough for the sector that's trying to make the world a better place. You know, mission-driven organizations, nonprofits, folks like we work with, um, Take it from the folks who are just trying to sell a product and imagine harnessing that power to now make the world a better place. It, it, and it um, presents a set of prompts that organizations can ask themselves, um, ask of themselves if this is something that they've not done before. And so um, there are things like purpose. Why do we exist? What are our motivations for this? It's not to deliver a service or a product. It is to fulfill a greater purpose, a greater, a greater destiny. Um, it's beliefs. What are our deepest, most firmly held convictions about that underlie this work? What are the fundamental truths about the world that motivate this work? And then it's vision. What does utopia look like? What problem are we solving and how? What are we trying to do? What, you know, I often ask clients, if you achieved all of your goals, what would it look like? literally describe to me a conversation that might take place at that moment between whom, what would they be saying to each other? Right. What would, what would that, what would that look like? And, and then it starts, then you start thinking about your, your consumer audience, your, you know, your stakeholder audience, how, who benefits from your work and how functionally and emotionally. Um, what are your reasons to believe? In other words, what credibility do you, bring to this place? Why would anyone believe that you can deliver the thing you say you can deliver that purpose? Why, did, why, why would anyone, why, what credibility do you bring to this? What, what have you accomplished? What can you point to? And then, uh, then there's brand character, um, which it's the sort of personality, personality and tone, the kind of voice um, that, that the voice that brands can sort of lean into at all times, regardless of the context around them. I often cite Google. If you're on a, a Google site, one of their properties and, and, and a connection gets lost or you hit a broken link, it says, oops, something went wrong, right? Google actually spends a lot of time being human, projecting themselves as human as opposed to robotic, Protect, projecting themselves as a little whimsical as opposed to sort of institutional. And that's on purpose. And so often we take clients through an exercise where we, we say, you know, on our best day, we are what? And on our best day, we are not what? And it, and it forces a client into this moment of considering how they want to be perceived. And that's really important when you think about the brand, how, you know, how you show up, how you project yourself. That's reminded me of a client um, that we did work with for years and years. Um, and they did these incredible trainings around leadership deep in the nonprofit and social change sector. And, um, but they had to sell these workshops and, you know, fill the classrooms and they did publics and then, then they did private. So the publics uh, were, you know, like 
eight a year. Um, and they took very seriously investing in, which is a dream for creatives, um, original creative postcards, like gorgeous designed um, with a message. And what they heard back from their and they're, they're, they've been around for like 25 years. Um, and what they heard back from their, um, you know, clients and partners was you make me feel less alone. Like doing this work, this social change work is lonely work sometimes. And not only did they give you the skills to build community, but they kept checking in with like gorgeous pieces of art and hope and, you know, careful thought around. It was usually a, a poem um, or some call to action. They're super radical. Um, and it was just great. And I have been in spaces of other clients where postcards those postcards are still hanging. They hang on to them because they feel connected. Yeah. The thing I would add to Sean, as you walked us through that pyramid, is that you know the kind of the, the key piece of all of that thinking is the that the differentiation that you create in the marketplace. And so sometimes clients fall into the trap of oh, we've got to get the right words down for all those things. You know, we ask them the right questions, they come up with the right answers. But if if it's not about designing that whole set of components, which have very different, both emotional and functional registers, some of which are measurable in many different ways, it's about driving differentiation and, and understanding of, of who we are. And then the, the key piece that underlies it all, that probably is the most important one, is the overall equity of the brand. So what are the things that you associate in an instant as you put all of those puzzle pieces together? And as we say the word National Park Service or Red Cross or uh, Google or any of those things, what are the literal attributes that you're trying to get people to remember and associate you with? And so there's actually a fair amount of science that goes into that, right? As you assemble the pieces, you lay out the breadcrumbs, you want people to get to a certain place and you understand what the barriers are to getting there. And so that, that's a, an essential piece of understanding it. And, and so the, the takeaway for clients is you can ask yourself all those questions, you can get the ideas down, but if you aren't looking at it through a lens of what makes you different against your peer group or against the category in which you operate, you probably just, you know, just spend some time, you might have been able to spend in another way more productively because you haven't cracked the code yet on, on what it is that makes your brand more different, more relevant, more compelling than others. And then the other key takeaway when you think about things like brand pyramids and those tools is that they really are brand building tools and that the pyramid definition is just the start uh, and that you will, you will want that to exist over time and you build and you create every single thing you do uh, is designed and linked to developing and strengthening those desired attributes. And so that's a part, uh, it's a, it's a multi-part process as you, as you define it, you think about it, you gather it, you put it in a place. You tattoo it on your arm, you put it on your wall, uh, and then you build it over time and you track your success against that. Uh, and then what the powerful part can be for organizations is it becomes a source of innovation. It becomes a source of disruption. It becomes a source of, wow, we're, we're claiming this, we're saying this, but we aren't delivering it. Or our competitor is doing it better than we are. Or someone new to our sector is showing up and taking this thing that we held so dear to us away from us. Uh, how do we operate in that environment? So thinking of it as a brand building tool, brand definition, brand building would be the other thing we would hope that our listeners would take away and, and ask themselves, are we defining and building our desired brand over time in a dynamic environment? 
And that distinction point, Craig, is so important. We often uh, will build, you know, with clients this brand architecture and then take a step back from it and say, can one of your competitors hijack this? If so, you know, what would that look like, right? We've done work in the education space and sort of progressive, um, you know, innovative teaching and learning. And often, you know, we have to, we have to call clients on the fact that they are, that, that their beliefs and purpose, for instance, could be hijacked by their detractors, by the, you know, the, the, the Jeb Bushes of the world, you know, that, yeah, you know, take all those beliefs and purpose and vision and therefore privatization vouchers that right all the things we don't believe in and so um you do have to that 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 distinction point is so so important as you come up with them the first set of ideas brainstorm can be quite easy when you dig deeper into what makes us us that's when you have it and as you guys just described it, it, it sort of feeds that entrepreneurial mindset that we referenced earlier, which can be maybe scary to a lot of organizations who aren't used to thinking that way. But when you start reframing things in this way and asking those questions that we just laid out there, it really gets you to start thinking in a way that is adaptive to a radical wise. You have that home base to always be reverting back to no matter what or no matter how um, it's applied. And I think what we're probably seeing is organizations that were sort of already doing this and already in this line of thinking are doing really well during this time of disruption. And those who hadn't started or maybe hadn't started doing this with their organization in a big way, um, I don't think it's too late. I think that this will not be the last, you know, age of disruption. This will not be the last um, time of, I would say, disruptive event, but uh, it's several disruptive events in quick succession. So this might be a little bit of an extreme example, but it won't be the last moment of disruption. And whatever your organization's mission is, it's worth existing beyond moments of disruption like these. So gearing yourselves up to be able to adapt and to be able to design for this disruption um, is something that is very, very important for you and your organization. And it's sort of what, what we've been seeing makes or breaks some of these brands and organizations in today's current moment. But that has been another episode of Design for Disruption with Hairpin, a collection of creatives, communicators, and strategists. Um, if you want to hear more about Designing for Disruption or you want to dive a little bit deeper into how we have designed for disruption or helped our clients design for disruption, you can head to designfordisruption.com. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast if you want to listen to more content like this and gain more strategies to bring back to your organization and start applying them. Thank you so much for listening. This has been Hairpin. Have a good one.